You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Well, here we are at the end of season five. And to be honest, I didn't want it to end. So today you'll be hearing part one of my conversation with Deborah Ann Bird. Now, she's an actress, singer, writer, producer, and the founder of the Harlem Shakespeare Company. Now, Deborah has accomplished so much, yet, as you'll hear, she's had lots of doubts and apprehension when it comes to being a performer. It made me really sad when I saw artists who fall apart, who die young, who don't make it because the stress or whatever reason it is. But I just noticed that they were dying young. And so I remember saying to myself, I'm not going to be in that world. That world is dangerous. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It or Win Me for short, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years. And each week I talk with fellow actors and creatives as we explore the realities of what it really means to make it in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com. There you can sign up for the monthly newsletter as well as support this podcast financially. Learn about all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. I first found out about Deborah Ann Bird through an article in The Guardian titled Black Shakespeare Champion Working to Change Views on Colorblind Casting. She was just starting a residency at Stratford-upon-Avon, and this article talks about one of Deborah's professors who discouraged her from getting into classical theater. That story alone piqued my interest, So I reached out to her, and the conversation that we had certainly talked about a whole lot more than just that one instance. Most actors can talk about how they got into theater and then trained and grew from there, but for Deborah, it was definitely a start-and-stop journey that almost didn't happen several times throughout her life due to personal, medical, and racial issues that she had to face and deal with. So while I may have said lightheartedly that I didn't want the season to end, the main reason for two parts to our conversation is because her story has so many interesting twists and turns that I just didn't want to fit it into one single episode. So we start off part one with a unique story of someone Deborah looked up to as a child. But as we continue our conversation, you'll hear an array of hardships and challenges that would cause any of us to question ourselves and wonder what to do next. But listen carefully, and you'll also hear an inner strength and a hope infused into each one of those struggles. It is certainly inspiring and a true testament to the strength of Deborah's character and spirit. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, Deborah Ann, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. So nice to meet you and get a chance to talk to you. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to uh, you to have me. Um, I am very appreciative of of uh, having an opportunity to chat with you. Good, good. Well, I, I look forward to our conversation. You know, I like to start at the at the beginning. You know, myself, I was a child of the '80s, and so my icons growing up, of course, were Michael Jackson, his music, and that performance. And you know, I remember Christopher Reeve as Superman. I wanted to be Superman. Did, were, did you have icons <laughs> like that, that that you looked up to that kind of inspired you as a child? <laughs> well, as a little child, believe it or not, you know, I really wanted to be the Ivory Girl. what was it about that that you just wanted to be so much i don't know i think she just had such a beautiful smile and she just she was like beaming you know she just was like the ivory girl i don't remember the the, i don't remember the song or how it (laughs) went but i do remember the joy on the face of that of that little person the Mm -hmm how bright they, they shone after they, and I wasn't even thinking about washing up. I was just thinking about, (laughs) I was thinking about just the happiness uh, and, and, and the joy that came across her face and she was beautiful. I said, I want to be beautiful and smiling like that, you know? Um, (laughs) So I know that's a silly one, but that's what I was thinking about. I I didn't really have a real career plan for my life. <laughs> so, did you have in mind like things that you wanted to be? Were, was it either in sports or in entertainment, or maybe what your parents did? Were there things that you thought about? Yes, as I got a little bit older, I did think about some things because I I learned some things about myself. I was good at um, sports. Um, I was on the track team, and I also did gymnastics. I realized that I could outdo the boys in gym class when we were doing pull-ups or when we were climbing those ropes. So I knew that it was an athletic thing to me. Um, My mother was a bookkeeper. And so I often thought as I grew a little bit older that one day I'm going to have an, I'm going to be an accountant I'm going to have an office and I'm going to make $30,000. And <laughs> I, I thought about stuff like that. Um, my dad was a person who was like a, a superintendent. So he liked to build things. I love to build things and take things apart and figure out how they work. Um, like that. I not, not still nothing um, deeper than well, I'm going to do what I think my mom does. And I think what mm-hmm. she does well, um, that's what, what my thinking was for a long time. And yeah. so growing up, did, did those dreams seem possible or, or did things start to get in your way? Well, they did seem possible. It seemed like I might could be able to do that. Um, but 
you know, I met this young man when I was about 15 and we got together and, and he said, you know, it's my birthday coming up and you're going to, you know, I, I hope that you like share, you know, share yourself with me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. But, you know, I decided, well, I don't really, really want to be alone. So let me just see what this stuff is and what this is about. And of course, at 16, I'm pregnant. And needing to figure out what's happening in my world. Prior was that to that, a blow um, to your parents as well. I assume they were pretty well. Yeah. By that. Well, let's put it like this: um, I didn't live with my dad. I lived with my mom and my other um, couple of siblings. And at fourteen, I left home um, because my mom was not doing really well. She, you know, she had lost some people in her world, and she started drinking a lot and hanging out, and and I just was not okay at home. And so I moved in with my grandma and I lived with her um, for the next two years. And then I was pregnant at 16. And then my grandma, she decided that she couldn't take care of me anymore. So she put me in foster care and Mm -hmm. I lived with the nuns um, uh, and the other social workers down at the New York Foundling Hospital. And so life did take a deep turn at 14 and then another turn at 16 and then living with the nuns and trying to figure that out and going to homeschool. I did graduate in time, but thinking about a career was not on my mind at all. I also thought about maybe I could join the, before I got pregnant, I was thinking about being like my brother and go to the air force, but all of those plans of any plans I ever had was Mm -hmm. then dashed because I was a young mother. Now I'm living in a group home and trying to figure it out from there. Um, I graduated in time. I went on to college, but I had to quit because I'm now I'm a young mother. And now I need to do something else. I can only imagine what that must have been like to be trying to start a family of your own. And yet your own family has departed there in other places. You know, you, you were now separated from them. How did you feel like being a mother? Did you even think what being a mother meant? Or were you just trying to emulate the mother that you grew up with no. and be your own? No, I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, the good thing, <laughs> the good thing is because I was in that, that um, group home situation where there were maybe eight other mothers and their children, we had like these classes and workshops on how to take care of yourself, how to cook, how to go shopping, how to save money, how to take care of your child. And then they helped you and you still went to school. And I still was kept learning as much as I could about everything that I could learn about until such a time as I realized I can't be at college right now because I need to get a regular job. So then, you know, there was my chance, my opportunity to become this accountant person that I thought about. And I took some classes, got an accounting certificate and started working in the bank taking care of my little Martha, who was a preemie. She was a preemie and two pounds mm. and half an ounce Oh wow! Um, in the hospital for three months. Um, and it was a big challenge. And, you know, I daddy, bet. that wasn't working out with her father. And so I decided I'm going to go ahead and be okay. I'm going to figure this out. Um, and so I just, you know, got into another program, another mother-child program. It was three women this time. Mm. And figure out how to pay the rent, how to do whatever I need to do to just survive, just figure it out. And that was going well. Well, it certainly seems like that along the way, even though th- these these challenges were coming up and setbacks, there were people or organizations, groups that were stepping up and mentoring you and kind of helping you along the way. 
That's absolutely so. Um, you know, when I think about it, sometimes I think, you know, nanny shouldn't have put me in foster care, you know. I, and I, at first I was thinking like that for a long time. And then when I, I, I grew up a little bit and I thought about it, I said, you know what? It probably was a good thing for me. Um, in fact, I know it was a good thing for me. It was a good thing for me because I had some assistance with um, taking care of little Martha and her special needs self. Because soon after she was born, uh, maybe two years later, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. So now I have I'm a young mother. I got this. <laughs> I got this special needs kid who really needs a lot of help. And so having support system around me was going to be really, really, really important. And those kinds of things really helped me to be able to try and achieve some of my goals. I didn't really understand yet or know that I had the ability to plan my life. I had the ability to figure out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to become. I didn't really get that until someone at one of my counselors at school said, Debran, do you know that that's possible? And I said, no, I really didn't ever get that. I thought life is just what it is. And as fate would have it, this is what it is. Right, right. Once I learned that, I started to really try and figure it out. Yeah, because it seemed like you were having to just live day to day, week to week, as far as, you know, paying the rent or, you know, taking care of your child, taking care of yourself. Absolutely. So I've I would imagine yes. I, I guess there's two ways that it could have gone that you you learned your own independence to stand up for yourself or that you learned to really be in a community and and kind of you know that whole it takes a village to raise a child to raise a person did you find yourself leaning more toward that independent streak or more toward relying and leaning on others I think I learned both I learned how to um stand up and be strong and uh, take care of myself. But I also learned what it means to be a community, to be a family with people who are not your necessarily your birth family, not your bloodline family. Um, some of that came from church um, and being in a church family because I was from a little girl. I was always uh, finding myself in the church. Um, and some of it came from just being with a group of women who you don't know, but they have become your sisters, you know? And so that was really great because that helped me. I think it probably, all of that probably helped me going future and, and, and my thoughts and how I think about the world as community, how I think about my career as community and not just as a single individual person. I'm always thinking community. Well, that that yeah. is certainly something that the theater, the actors in general, we see ourselves as kind of brothers and sisters in arms on stage, and and you know the community and family that we get from those that we get to perform with and and be in community with. So, what was it that first introduced you or made you think that acting then was a possibility? <laughs> well, like at church, like I said, <laughs> I was at church, and um, by that time. I met and married Reverend Nathan Bird. And so I was a lone minister's wife. And we had a beautiful evangelical ministry, and it was going really great. But I was also on the choir, and the choir was preparing for a Black History event. And they lost their Harriet Tubman. And they said, Deborah will you fill in? I was like, Mm-mm, I'm sorry, I'm studying to be a reverend. I don't have time for all of that. And so then they said, 
come on, Deborah, you help us out. And I said, okay, I'll go do it. And next thing you know, I'm playing this little old lady who was Harriet Tubman and I memorized the lines and after the performance, one of the other ministers' wives, you say, Deborah Ann, you know, you're pretty good at that. You should think about becoming a professional actor. No, darling, I'm sorry. I'm going to be a preacher. Because <laughs> this was your first time on stage, right? This was my first time on stage. And <laughs> my best buddy was trying to get me to change my mind. And so what she did, she said, Deborah Ann, there is an acting class being taught by an evangelist. And it's down at the Y and it's only five bucks. You got to come. I was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) And so I went and it was great. And once I start learning not to laugh at myself, um, I did well. And she, my teacher, she cast me as the lead in in her gospel play. And and it went from there. Yeah, I mean, that's something we all have to kind of learn because there's that critical lie that we have on ourselves of judging, am I saying the right line? Am I doing it right? Yeah, I mean, those self-doubts still come uh, no matter how long we've been in this business. But I can imagine that that was somewhat of a hurdle then to get over since you had never thought about acting and now all of a sudden you're in acting class. Yep. I mean, I was thinking that I would never really be in in entertainment business because it made me really sad when I saw or heard about artists who who fall apart, who die young, who don't make it because the stress of being, or whatever reason it is, I don't know exactly why they die, but I just noticed that they were dying young. And it really, really, something about that really broke my heart every time. And so I remember kept saying to myself, I'm, I'm not going to be in that world. That world is dangerous. You know, so it was really interesting when I decided to go ahead and take that acting class. I guess I felt safe because my acting teacher was an evangelist. You know, she was a woman of God. So I figured I was good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then um, playing in the gospel play was beautiful. I think I can do this. You know, I, I think this is something that I can do. So did you first see acting as merely just an extension of, of your ministry then? I did. I did. You know, did I see it like an extension of my ministry? At the time, I really did because I was acting in gospel plays. And then I was sometimes acting in other Black theater productions. Um, And I was always playing somebody's mother or grandmother. And I was looking really, really young, but I was still, I was playing some, because I I had um, that mama kind of feeling or energy. Um, you know, I could love you and 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 um, correct you and rebuke you and also make you feel comfortable. And so I would always get cast as the mothers. And and then I would also be in gospel plays. And that was more in line with who I thought I was at the time. And then I was confused about, well, am, I, am I supposed to be an actor or am I supposed to be a preacher? I wasn't 100% sure, but then I figured it out. What led to you making that decision either way? Well, I was a little bit confused. By this time, was like maybe three years into my marriage, maybe three and a half. And, and you know, he decided he didn't want to be married anymore. I was like really confused. Excuse me, preacher don't want to be, wait a minute, I'm confused. So <laughs> I went to um, my pastor and I say, Rev, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Um Am I supposed to be an actor? Am I supposed to be a minister? Am I supposed to, and Reverend Bird said to me, Deborah Ann, you belong in the theater. And I said, really? Wow. Um, and then I decided once I, right after my separation, I broke my leg in the park, 
Then I got fired from my job. So everything seemed to fall in line in that I was no longer in the um, regular professional world, the nine to five world. I was a little more free agent now because I couldn't really figure out a new, another job. And so one of the other ministers from the private school, she said, well, maybe this is the time for you to just really try to really dig deep and see what happens in theater. Did he say why he thought theater was for you? He didn't. But with Reverend Bird, he had helped coach and guide my life since I met him when I was 14. And because over the years, I was one of those young people who I was having a rough time and not really understanding if I wanted to be on this planet or not. And Reverend Bird would always coach me and counsel me and help me to figure it out one moment at a time. And so when I went to him, there was no one on the planet that I trust more um, with my thoughts, with my life, with with anything that was happening in, to me and around me. And I was such a faith girl. And when Rev said, you belong in the theater, I took it as if he heard that directly from God. That's how I hold it, that's how I was holding it. And so I said, okay, I think that that, that, that that could be really so. And so I just started to keep on pursuing my career. And, and then it was seeming to be really true because I worked all the time. Sometimes I had two and three shows. One time I was fired from one of them because I had too many. They said, we need more of your time, Deborah. You can't just keep putting conflicts. So <laughs> that's, that's a good problem to have, I guess, to have too many shows. Yeah. <laughs> I had too many shows. I mean, I would sometimes not even have to audition. People were called, they see me in one thing, they hear about it, they call me for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I was always working um, in some show. And so I was like, this seems like this is right. You know, and just kept going until my daughter got really ill and um, I had to quit acting for a little while. And then she got to the point of death and I had mm -hmm. to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I didn't know because I just laid down to die. I put her in the hospice and I just laid down. I laid there for three months and a friend called and said, Deborah Ann, just because your daughter's dying doesn't mean you have to die too. And I thought about it really deeply and very seriously. And then I had a fight with God. God, I'd, I'd fight with him too, you know, trying said, to take God, my child away. What is this? <laughs> what is this life? Is this a shit? I mean, why is my daughter dying? Um, how, why? She's barely 10 years old and she's dying. What, why am I here on this crazy planet anyway? If, if you was going to take her from me, why would you send her here? And then I heard God say, wait a minute, daughter. First of all, she is not yours. She is mine. I sent her there to save your life. If she was not born, you'd be dead by now. Remember what you did, what you were thinking when you was at the window about to jump out? Yes, God, I said I can't take it anymore. But if I jump, who's going to take care of Martha? And that time you was at the rooftop, what did you say? If I die, who's going to take care of Martha? And that was only two times that Martha saved my life. So are you going to lay there and die? Or are you going to get up and do something with yourself? And I was like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know. And so it was crazy like that. And then it was in those moments when I realized if I get up from here, I got to be excellent. I got to make a difference in this world. Mm -hmm. I want to be excellent, not just good. 
I want to do, I want to do something that, that when I'm gone from the planet, folks will be able to say, she helped us. She inspired us. She worked hard with us, for us. I wanted to be useful. I wanted to be like some of my Bible days and some of my, some of the things I learned from being a a Christian girl. I wanted to be in service and of service and useful and not just ordinary. And so I decided, well, by that time I had seen a troupe of black actors performing Shakespeare. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just continue on in the theater and maybe I'll try that Shakespeare thing that intrigued me a few years ago. But then if I'm going to give it a try, I can't just try it. I got to go to school. <laughs> you got to do it. And you then so right. I, I went to school and they let me in. It was August and school starts in September, but they let me in and they say, you audition for the theater program next semester. And we did that. And I got in and I did my years. I did my three years um, acting one, two and three uh, acting one. I failed because Martha was getting sicker and sicker. And my teacher would not understand um, Mm. that I really needed to try and split my time between taking care of a dying child and trying to be an actor in school. And she, she didn't care. And so she gave me a D and I failed, but that was okay because I came back the next semester and I just moved on to acting too anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I moved all the way to acting four where then I was terrified. I was terrified because I knew that it was time to go to acting four, which was the Shakespeare that I had been coming to school for in the first place. Then I saw um, New York Shakespeare's festival. They were doing Julius Caesar and Jeffrey Wright was playing Mark Antony. And I saw myself. I saw him with like this swagger. I saw him um, in his bravado. I saw him walking the way that I recognized. And I said, oh, my God, he's from the hood. Just like me. He's from the hood. I'm going to go ahead and be okay. I'm going to be okay. Because you saw a piece of yourself, a piece of your own heart, you know, I how did. you presented yourself, how you emoted. You saw it on stage. I saw my culture. I saw, I saw that smooth, sweet walk. It's something that I recognized. And I said, that's me. I could do this. I'm going to be okay. And then I went on to acting four and it was beautiful. And my Shakespeare teacher, Elizabeth Swain, was amazing. And she's the person who took me down to see John Barton. And that's where I saw Charles Dutton playing Othello, act five, scene two. It was like fate. Fate just kept happening. Things just kept lining up for me. Um, But then I had these two professors on my acting interview exit. Um, I was trying to do showcase and, and one said, you shouldn't do any classics in the showcase with your facility for language. Perhaps you should try your hand at August Wilson. Are you going to sing a song? A song? You mean like a sad ass song that my ancestors had to sing? It wasn't like I didn't like August Wilson. <laughs> I did. But I had lived through those kinds of plays and stories for the last seven, eight years in the Black theater. And Shakespeare was offering me a challenge and a chance to grow. And I said, this is what I want to do. And then I was cast as Lady Bracknell and the importance of being earnest. And I had some love that play. Love that play. I had some trouble there. There were some people, uh, namely some of my other classmates who didn't think I should have that role. 
And Ernest, he was not very happy with me getting a role. And he wouldn't even act with me. He'd look off stage into the wings and talk to me. And you can't tell from the audience that he's not looking at me. But I could tell every but day. But you knew. And it was a challenge. But at the same time, I was feeling the weight of the world of every Black person who ever wanted to do classical theater because I felt like I was the first Black lady Bracknell in the entire planet. And if I didn't get it right, what would that mean for the other Black classically trained actors coming behind me? Would I set us back? I was carrying that. I was carrying the, the girl who caught me in the elevator and said, I hate you, Deborah Ann Bird. You stole my role. I was carrying that 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 young man who was, wouldn't act with me. I was carrying a lot. But my Shakespeare teacher, she was really on my side. Mm. And those professors who told me I shouldn't do any classics, um, one of them said, you know, Deborah Ann, I know that you're playing Lady Bracknell. But what I'm going to advise you to do is to take photos of that production because no one is ever going to believe your resume when they see it. You know, you're setting yourself up for quite a challenge, but you go, girl. So, so what was it? What what was it within you that kept going despite this, this, I would say horrific treatment, but, but certainly people putting up these roadblocks and just saying you are not good enough. And then second part of that question, was it just the color of your skin or was it, did they talk about your ability as well? Like, well, you're just not able to do that. No, it was not my ability because first they prefaced it with, with your facility for language. So I had the facility for language. I could surely do the classics. I became really, really good at it. Um, you know, after voice and speech and acting one, two and three and learning all the heightened and all of the, you know, all the exercises and everything you needed to do. And no one could be more British than me in the whole damn school. Mm. So, of course, I could definitely play the role. But it had to do with the fact that I was a brown girl. And um, and that broke my heart. And that made me very angry at the same time because I was thinking about the $75,000 that I just spent to learn Shakespeare and the classics. I was thinking about the four wasted years. I just studied my ass off in vain, learning about the Greeks and the Romans and Ibsen and Chekhov and how to sit and how to speak and how to hold a goddamn fan. And I just ran out of the classroom and I just sobbed. I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Um, And my Shakespeare teacher, Elizabeth Swain, she says, Deborah, I hear you saying you're going to change your career. You're going to change your, uh, to communications or something. You want to be a journalist. But Deborah, um, it really doesn't matter what profession you choose. If you're a banker, there are going to be problems there. If you're in communications and you're a journalist, there are going to be problems there. No matter what you choose, there are going to be problems there. So stop crying. Try your face and go back to class, she said. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I did that. I went back to class. But then I couldn't help thinking about, is this really happening here in America in 2001? Well, especially in, especially in a theater school, because theater is is portrayed as this more open, inclusive, welcoming community. So you would think that you would least find it there. Right. I mean, there were a lot of professors, and don't get me wrong, the chairman of the department. Um, I had several real strong, beautiful, championing 
um, professors that were really on my side, really helping me to win awards and really helping to move my career forward. But then I ran into the traditionalists, people who felt like this is the way it is, Miss Bird, and this is the way it's going to be. And so to save you from some heartache, we need to tell you now, don't even try and go down that road because it's not going to work out for you. And I didn't like that idea. Yeah. I came to college specifically to learn Shakespeare. And now it's time for me to go back into the world and try my hand at being a classical actress. And now a bona fide agent, she knows who gets cast and who doesn't. She wasn't necessarily trying to be a monster, although that's how she came off. <laughs> Especially when she said, you go, girl. <laughs> what? And so... <laughs> so <laughs> I know she didn't mean to be a monster unless she did. Um, but at the same time, it didn't stop it from breaking my heart. It didn't stop it from stop me from feeling um, put out, kept out and shut out. And what it did is it, it made me try to figure out what is this thing? Is this true? Is there any truth there? And so I decided I, I needed to, to, to check into it. And I got a book from uh, one of my other professors, um, Dr. Mark Ringer. He said, this book is for you. And it was the history of Black Shakespearean actors. Mm. And when I read that book and found out that in 1821 in New York City, there was a troupe of Black actors performing Shakespeare, I say, ha, there we go. We've been <laughs> performing it for a long, long time. But I also learned there was another white troop of actors who said, you, you shouldn't do Richard III. We're doing Richard III. We're bringing across to America McReady. And um, our Richard III is going to be what, but the black troop was having much success. And when they were opening night, the police stormed the, stormed the performance and put them all in jail. And the judge only let them go if they promised never to act Shakespeare again. When I read all those chapters, one after another, I couldn't stop crying after each chapter. And I learned that whenever your emotions go to a space like that, somehow you're connected to that thing. Otherwise, you wouldn't get so upset. And then I realized, okay, Deborah Ann, you're supposed to do something about this. So did and it feel more like a, a burden to carry this, this history of, of what you've been reading? Or did it feel more like a calling? It felt like a calling. It felt like I was being handed a baton. Like this is your leg of the race. And it's your turn to help advance this thing. And I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought about, so how do I do that? And I started looking it up. Are there any companies run by people of color who do the classics? What is the arguments here? What are, what are people saying? And so I read some of what um, what people were saying. Well, we can't allow um, these um, actors of color to be in our shows because they can't really speak to speech. They don't have the time on the stage. They don't have the, um, their, their resumes don't reflect that they can actually do it. Well, our resumes can't reflect that it act, we can actually do it because then you don't hire us. Once we come out of the schools with our MFAs and our BFAs, the same as Audrey and Sally and Janie and whoever else, we had the same training as they had, but you don't cast us. And when you do, we don't get to play Richard III and Queen Elizabeth. We get to hold the spear. 
So how do we get better if we don't have opportunities to practice our craft? And so I said, you know what you're going to do, Debran? You're going to start a company. You're going to build your own theater company where classically trained actors of color graduating with BFAs and MFAs will have opportunities to practice their craft from the ground up, from the time they leave the school. Let's give them opportunities. If their talent can hold a Hamlet, then he's Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the center stage will be a classically trained actor of color. But so that folks, nobody will be able to say that you are bigoted and you kept people out, you put people out, you shut people out. Your cast will be mixed race, all of your cast, unless it calls for something else. But your cast will be mixed race. And the only qualifier will be that you do have your MFA, BFA or your conservatory and you can actually play the role. Let's do that. And then I do what I call set out to change the face of American classical theater. Mm. And um, that was 19 years ago. And that's where we'll pick up with part two of my conversation with Deborah Ann Bird, the formation of the Harlem Shakespeare Festival, and her journey to taking on one of the most iconic roles in Shakespeare theater, Othello. And the best way to keep up with all the upcoming episodes, including the beginning of Season 6, is to get the Win Me newsletter by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Music you hear in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.